So here we go with this sacred time together to hear the words of Scripture unpacked and preached for us together. You get to be a very, very active listener, but as you will see by the end of this, the words themselves are going to be acting on your soul as well. I'll unpack those words of Scripture from Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. We're going to be hitting this text that opens up for us the nature of the gospel word or the nature of the word of God and its ability to get down into our hearts and to expose, to see, to convict, and to change and affect us down at the deepest part of our souls and move us from loving sin to loving Christ. The gospel word is alive and it changes us. It moves us from loving what is not lovable to loving Christ. All right, let me frame this for you like this. There are always voices all day long, every day from every side of you trying to tell you this is fundamentally who you are. This is who you are, and so here's the most important activity or the most important activities that you need to be about to shape that identity. This is who you are, and therefore, this is what you have to make sure is happening in your life. Okay, let me run through some of these, and it might, might help you here. So here's one. You're told this. You are what you do. You are what you do. Who, who has heard this before? Who has felt this pressure when you are first meeting someone at your kid's soccer game or a party or you're waiting in the airport for the plane and the person starts talking to you and you're like, why didn't I buy those big headphones? What are the two questions that they always press on you? The first is where you're from and then the second is always what? What do you do? And in that moment, you can feel that it is life and death that I have a good answer to that question if this is the core of my identity. Uh, I struggle with this. When I meet someone new, how do I answer them? You want to go with the most thoughtful and careful and flattering possible answer. So do I say, I'm a pastor? Is that the best way to answer that question? Does that, does that put me in their eyes the best? Or do I say, I'm a church planter? Does that sound like more entrepreneurial, a little less goofy, a little more like, wow, this guy's accomplishing something? Or do I say, well, I lead a family of churches called Seven Mile Road. Is that the best way to define who I am by what I do. Or often there's a pressure on me to say, don't mention the Jesus stuff. Just tell them uh, I'm, I'm a CFO for a school district in Massachusetts. That's the best answer to that question. Does everybody feel this? What's most important in your life if this is true? Building that LinkedIn page to look awesome making sure that you got the right job, the right career with the right title and you are moving in the right direction because I am what I do. All right, how about this one? It's a little bit different, but it's similar. 
you are what you earn. Who has felt this pressure before to be like the key to your joy and your identity? This is a totally American way of thinking about it. Your paycheck equals who you are. If this is true, we give ourselves to certain things. I got to move up in the tax brackets. I've got to make more money. I'll work more hours. I will bend the rules if I need to, but I must earn more next year than I did this year because this is who I am becoming. And then even if we can't generate the paycheck, we generate a front that looks like we're generating the paycheck. At least let me dress a certain way to send the message of my income level. I will go lease that car because for three years, my identity will be propped up. I have to live in the right zip code. Even if it's the rattiest house and it will not be loving for my wife, it's got to be in that zip code because I am what I earn. All right, how about this one? Totally Melrose deal. You are what you eat. You establish your identity by eating the right foods and not eating the wrong foods. Am I the only person that gets terrified when I walk into Market Basket? Just like paralyzed about, am I making the right choices? I don't even know what gluten is, but I'm always trying to figure out, should I have gluten, gluten-free, which one's better? Do you know that they have whole milk, 2% milk, 1% milk, skim milk, and now they get this almond milk stuff? It's like a life-defining decision standing at the milk freezer. I just follow people around that look like they're in shape, and I'm like, what are you buying? I'm going to put that in. (laughs) We did Kalos track with our women a couple of Friday nights ago and went out to eat, took them to the Cheesecake Factory before pressing into Titus 2. I was terrified to order out loud. I was like, I don't, I need to posture correctly in front of these women with what my diet is. If I get the jambalaya pasta, they're going to be like, oh, those calories, I can't believe this guy. You know that raspberry lemonade where they coat the edge of the cup with sugar? Am I allowed to order that in public? How many people have ever been in line at McDonald's and someone you sort of kind of know walks in? Oh, God, is that not terrifying? They're like, what are you doing here? Ah... Bathroom, stop, I had to use the bathroom. Great, you getting some food after? What? No, food? McDonald's? Of course not. Everyone feel that pressure? It's a billion dollar industry building this false identity. It's the new fundamentalism. If I eat right, then I will have joy. Then I will be somebody. So what's the most important thing you do if this is your world? You must have the right diet. You must choose the right foods. You must read the labels all the way down. You must shop in the right stores if you are what you eat. How about this one? You are what you feel. This is the great postmodern answer to this question, right? We are living in this crazy world where has said, you are whatever you feel. This is how we get movies like Frozen and Inside Out to be generation-defining movies. This is how we get Bruce Jenner. This is how we get no-fault divorce. I don't feel like being married anymore. That's not me anymore. 
I got to be true to myself. Whatever's going on in my emotions, in my mood, that is who I am, and I must be free to follow those feelings. It's a horrible God, completely exhausting. You never know who you are. There's no anchor to your life. You become enslaved to how you feel. But we live there, totally. What's the most important thing that you do if you are what you feel? Stare in the mirror. Try to assess what's going on in me. It's an unbelievably myopic approach to life. Every day I wake up and say, who do I feel that I am today? And I must, must actualize those feelings. You guys live there in our world with me. How about this one? Totally Bostonian. You are what you know. This is the city of Boston way of thinking through this. The best people, the happiest people, the most self-actualized people, real joy is with knowledge. If you know the right authors and you've read the right books and you have the right degrees and certifications, then you are somebody. What's the most terrifying question in like a wine and cheese conversation in the Boston area? Where'd you go to school? Or have you read, and then they fill it in with some name that you've never heard in your life, you know? Have you read Saucer? Have you read Chesterton on this? Have you read Lewis on the affections? It's a terrifying question because now there's this pressure that what if you go, I'm actually not sure who Saucer is. We do everything that we can to show people we're not dumb. It's an identity issue. I actually went to a, a lecture at MIT on presenting data and information, and I did it so I could preach better to you, and it was a wonderful time, but I realized afterward, I love telling people that I went to this thing. I love that. Bob Thune was in uh, helping us lead an Acts 29 training last week, and I was driving him around the city after eating in the North End, and we went across the Mass Ave Bridge, and we were driving down Memorial Drive, and I was like, that's MIT. And I went, oh. And then I said out loud, you know, I went to a lecture at MIT on presenting data and information. And Bob was like, whoa. The whole conversation fit this right here. I am what I know. And if I can show this guy that I know stuff, then I'm trending in the right direction in life. And so what's the most important thing here? Where you do go to school or learning, reading, studying. Do I need to learn Latin? Am I watching enough Jeopardy? I am what I know. Okay, we could run through a bunch of other ones. You are what you wear. You are what you tweet. Here's the Bible's answer for this question, the thing that most forms and shapes our identity. This is it right here. You are what you love. We could say you are what you worship, but you worship what you love. So you are what you love is the bottom line. What you love drives everything about who you are becoming, what you love. Another way to say this is what your heart values the most. The state of your heart drives who you are. When we say heart, we mean the seat of our will 
as well as our affections and our emotions, like our resolve, it's the center of us. The executive driver of our lives is our hearts. Where your heart is, where your affections are, what you treasure the most, what you love defines you all the way down. This is why the old saints would say, Christianity is heart religion. Have you ever heard that before? True Christianity is heart religion. In other words, we're not here today because there's a moral code and we're just finding good ways to check the boxes and give external obedience to a way of living. Christianity is the living God going after our hearts. That's what this is. It is God in Christ through the Spirit getting after the deepest part of you. What did Jesus say was the first and the greatest fundamental foundational commandment? What was it? Here's where it all starts. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. I don't know if you've been in these conversations, but I have heard God criticized for that being the great command of the Christian faith to begin with. How can someone command someone to love them? Love me. I command you. Isn't that arrogant and narcissistic and manipulative? It actually sounds a little creepy. Like, who tells someone else, you must love me? Well, not if the greatest joys in the universe, issuing in eternal joy, emanate from a soul that has begun to love God rightly. In other words, if that's how this works, what a gracious command to begin with. Here's number one. Get your heart excited about the most excitable thing in the universe. Love me with all that you've got. If we ever began to obey that command, this is what will come naturally for you when you are glorified in heaven. Your heart will be on fire for God infinitely with no dimming. If we ever began to even replicate what is coming for us in loving God, we would be the most holy, happy, useful, generous, content, secure people in the world. If God had our hearts all the way down, we would finally be who we were meant to be because you are what you love. This is why the gospel is such fantastic news. What is the first great promise of the gospel of the new covenant? God says, I will come and I will give them new hearts. This heart of stone that loves self and sin that we are born with. In the gospel, he does this miraculous surgery and he says, boom, new heart, which means what? New affections, new passions, new treasuring, new loves. That's the promise of the gospel. I will give you a new heart. Finally, our loves are rightly ordered. When you are born again, you realize that's what's happened to me. In the deepest part of my personhood, something just changed. Jesus became my great treasure. He became more beautiful to me than anything else. 
If I just had him, you can take all the rest. My foundational love has changed to Christ. He swoops in there and he changes us. What happens then is that the great new pursuit of your life, the thing that you need to make the most sure of and give yourself to most is, if I am what I love and if God has birthed the love for him in my heart, I need to make sure that that love stays inflamed, that our heart remains loving the right things, that my love for God, for his word, for his people, for his gospel, for his law, for his promises, for his cross, does not grow dim or hard. That happening in us is now everything because we are what we love, and so we need our hearts to continue to love rightly. Okay, if all of that is true, then this verse of Scripture, which is both a warning and an invitation, becomes incredibly beautiful this morning because it insists that God is as determined as we are or even more determined than we are to see to it that our hearts stay pure, that our hearts stay fervent, that our hearts stay soft. And that means that he works on our hearts. And his means of doing that, of getting us there, is exposing the sin that would creep in there, shining a spotlight on it, getting down into that place where anything would threaten the fervency of our love, and convicting us and calling us back to our first love, our first love, our first love. And that means is the gospel word. The means of God getting at your heart and your love is his word. All right, let's look at that in the scripture. This was from Hebrews 4. This is what Patty read. We're just gonna do three verses. He started here. Let's strive to enter that rest. In other words, to believe the gospel and have heaven before us, the rest that God has promised. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same sort of disobedience he's referring back to the older covenant people of God who never made it to the promised land because their hearts grew hard. He literally says it like this, their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They had allowed their love, their affections, their trust, their passions to fade from God back to the sin that they were a part of in the land of Egypt. And the writer says, that happens, don't let that happen to you. Don't let your heart fade from loving rightly. And then he drops this massive truth on us, and I want us to receive it as an invitation and a warning. Here we go. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. All right, so let's work these words together. The word of God. 
People talk about this in different ways. Some people say, that's Jesus. He is the Word, and He's the one who's living and active by His Spirit doing this work. And then others say, it's the Bible, the Word of God captured in the canon of Scripture, and He has infused His very self in those words. And then other people say, it's the gospel word or the announcement of truth spoken and heard and received by us. Usually we tend to go, yes, yes, yes. It's like all of those things wrapped up into this phrase, the word of God. Christ is speaking to us with the canon of scripture as the definitive word of God, but then it comes to us in real time as God's spoken word to us. God addresses your heart personally through his word. It comes to us in preaching. That's why we give ourselves to this. You hear the word of God proclaimed and it gets at your heart. It comes to us in songs. That's why we try and sing songs that are Bible-saturated. It comes to us in conversations, gospel community, one-on-one. The Lord speaks through his servants. It comes to us in memorizing scripture, reading our Bibles, or even reading books about the Bible that make the Bible come alive to us. God uses words which have meaning and truth to change our hearts. God speaks to us through his word. Then he says that word is living and active. How many people have been around words that are just dead? They just don't move you. You're like, oh man, I'm going to fall asleep right now. You know those books when people joke and they go, put that by your bedside, you'll be asleep by the second page because those words are dead and lifeless. I went to one seminary class in my life, no offense to everyone who went to seminary. Oh man, I wanted to cut my wrist like 37 minutes into it and that's because I wasn't a part of the class and I was an outsider and Seminary is probably wonderful and beautiful, but this one day, those were dead words. There was nothing moving in here. I had to read a grant management policy one time. Oh, my goodness. Those words were dead. That's not the way the gospel word is. If you have children, you saw a movie called Flubber. Anybody ever heard of that? All right, yeah. So the little slime is just like flying all over the place. The word of God is like that. It's bouncing, it's moving, it's active, it's accomplishing things. This word active is better heard like powerful. There's the psalm that talks about how the voice of the Lord is over the waters and it snaps trees in half and it moves mountains and it accomplishes things. It is a living and active agent The way that he helps us here is with this thought, God's word pierces, it cuts. The metaphor that he uses here is super sharp. It is much more sharp, and then in his context, he went with the sharpest thing he could think of. So he says, you know how active and sharp and accomplishing things the word of God is? You know the sharpest instrument that we have, a double-edged sword that's cutting both on the in and the out? It's, it's in a whole nother category even than that, but he wants you to feel super sharp. What would that be in our day? Is anybody old enough to have been up at two in the morning and see the advertisements for the Ginsu knife and the guy's cutting shoelaces and he's cutting nails 
and, and then he's splitting hairs with this knife. It's like the greatest knife ever. Did you actually buy one? You can't even cut a peach in like two weeks. <laughs> well, the Ginsu knife, the sharpest knife that exists, the word of God is sharper than that. Like we might think of a laser. Um, but the point is that it, it, it's sharp and it can get through anything. Nobody knows exactly what this piercing soul and spirit Joints and marrow exactly means there's different ideas, but the big idea is that the Word of God has this ability to get all the way down, all the way down. I was thinking that if this was written today, he might have used x-rays as his metaphor. They could never imagine something like that, but you know how x-rays work, right? We can only see the surface, superficial. We don't know what's going on inside, but we have this unbelievable technology that allows you to see all the way down. If you ever wanted to see something super cool, take uh, Matt's wrist and put it under an x-ray because he broke it playing football and then they rebroke it and put it back together with two screws, but he's got this hand and then you can see the two giant screws keeping his wrist together. See how that works? You, you would never see that from the surface, but there's this thing, it's called an x-ray and it knows, it knows what's going on all the way down in the inside. And the writer here is saying, this is what God's word is like. This is not a joke. It is not dead words. It is not superficial. It gets all the way down. It is sharp enough to do that. A couple of months ago, I got a splinter. And I was like, oh, Grace, please, you're going to help me get this thing out. <laughs> Six, three and a half, and I'm crying over like a little splinter. So she's like, come here, you baby, I'll work on it. And so she's starting to work on it with her thumbs, right? And I'm screaming and moaning like it's surgery or something. And her thumbs were not sharp enough to get down in to be able to remove the splinter. So then she started working with her nails, a little bit sharper, right? So now I'm even more pain and she's digging around. She goes, this isn't going to work. So what does she go do? She goes and grabs a needle. And now she starts getting to work on the skin around the splinter. She is able to pierce what needs to be pierced to expose what needs to be exposed so that she can finally go in there with the pliers. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't that big of a splinter. With the tweezers. And she was able to get it only because she had an instrument that was sharp enough to expose so that the work could be done. This is, in his love for us, what God does for us because we are what we love and we need heart surgery all the time. His word discerns the intentions and the motives of our hearts. One author I read said it like this, the spiritual, almighty, penetrating efficacy of Christ as he deals with people's souls and consciences by his word. That's this right here. The word of God has a power to get all the way down in what's going on in your heart. Have you had this experience before? So there are moments in life when if you will expose yourself to the word of God, he will meet you in such a way that your life will never be the same again. Just destroy you at the deepest place of sin and unbelief in your soul. 
we don't chase those moments because we couldn't handle them if he dealt with us that way every time. But if you've ever had that experience, you know that the word of God is living and active and can get down in here and expose and convict and change. I have had this happen to me in sermon settings. Grace and I were at an Acts 29 pastor's retreat one time, and the pastor who was preaching was being faithful with the word, and the Lord just just cut me unimaginably. And I knew when we got back to our hotel room that we needed to talk, and then I needed to confess sin to grace, and we needed to get down to the bottom of some things that were keeping me from being free and from loving her well. I never would have made that decision on my own, but God, by the gospel word, penetrated my soul and said, you are not loving me and trusting me in that place. And it affected beautiful maturity and change in my soul and in our marriage. I remember the first time I memorized Acts 20. I was in my room by myself. Nobody was home, which is odd because there's six of us. Somebody's always home. And God just did surgery on my soul and ripped me open. And I am weeping as I am memorizing scripture. And he is calling me to account for all the sinful ways that I had led this church for the first 12 years and said, this needs to change. And it was his word working on my soul, exposing me, convicting me, and changing me. Sometimes it's so huge that you'll remember like what you were wearing when God visited you. But it's not just every now and then he shows up in that way. In a lesser sense, but in a real sense, that should be happening every day, every other day, every week of your life, exposing yourself to the gospel word because you are what you love and you need God to be at work on your heart. Sermons do this all the time. We just sit and we listen and God cuts us and he works on us and he corrects us and he moves us to love him more deeply, more desperately. Songs do this. Am I the only one who was like blown away at the core of my soul the first time you heard in Christ alone? I mean, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my rock, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and fiercest storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when finally my striving ceased, he's my comforter, he's my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. That's the gospel word in song cutting you and saying, is Jesus that to you or not? And if not, something's wrong. Can you not sing that song with your heart and your hands lifted in wonder that that's you, that's you, because I am what I love, and I love that Christ, the words of Scripture. This has happened in gospel conversation. This has happened in memorizing Scripture. We give ourselves to this. If you are what you love, then the main pursuit of your life is making sure, making sure that your heart is in a good place. And that means exposing yourself to the gospel word, the word of God, constantly, over and over again. That's an invitation. It's also a warning. It's also a warning. The opposite is absolutely true. 
If you want God, you give him your heart and you expose yourself to his word that he might work on you. If you want nothing to do with God, his holiness, his mission, his people, his gospel, his cross, his call for you to take up your cross and follow him. If you love the world and the ways of the world and the things of the world, it's your thing. What is the one thing that you would avoid like crazy? You would stay a hundred miles from the word or the words of God. Remember, no one is ever neutral on God. Never. You are either running for him in desperate hope or you are running away from him, dodging and ducking in darkness. Am I the only cheapskate who tries to work the inspection sticker game and like get the sticker three days after the prior month expired? Who else does that? You know someone that does? Okay, Chris? Uh. Anyway, you can ask me about it, how to save like, I don't know, it's like saving $6, $3 or something. I'm just, just ridiculous. But if you work that system, there's this little stretch of time where you're like, okay, I can't get pulled over. I can't come too close to a cop because they're going to see that I have last month's sticker and I'm waiting for the next month to buy the new one. Chris, right? Okay. <laughs> you are driving that car through parking lots, up on sidewalks, around to avoid where there potentially could be a police officer because you know if he sees this sticker, I got trouble. That's the way you live your life if in your conscience you know that you don't love God, that you love your sin. I'm avoiding at all costs. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was tall and skinny. I was a terrible basketball player. So I was on the bench of the JV team, um, and I would get in for the second half. And uh, one of our home games, Reggie Lanciani was the football coach, and he's watching the game. And uh, I'm in, and there's a fast break, and I go running. I had the athletic ability to be good. I just hadn't given the sport the attention that it needed to be good. So I could run and catch. So I'm running with all my lanky bones, and there's this long pass, and I catch it like this. You know, it was like a fast break pass, and I catch it, and then I bounce it twice, and I lay it in. Well, the next day, 7.30 in the morning, Coach Lanciani finds me. He's like, Cruz, why ain't you playing football? You got to play football. I need a wide receiver next year. You got to play football. Every day for like two months, this guy was on me about playing football. On his confession, I was much too soft. I was too scared to play football. I started finding ways to get to class that would avoid his room. Back hallways, climbing outside in a window, because I was terrified that this guy was going to because I didn't want to play football. Everybody feel that? That's the life of every unbeliever in Melrose right now. And it was you and me before the grace of God. We don't want to love God. We don't want to be pure. We don't want to be holy. We don't want to serve someone else. And so we duck and we dodge and we avoid God at all costs. If you want nothing to do with being holy and humble in here, you will never expose yourself to the gospel word. You won't do it. Why do you think that in godless cultures, who's the first person that gets shut up or put in prison? Who is it? It's the preachers, right? Ask John Bunyan, 12 years in prison because they did not want the unfettered gospel preached where he lived. 
What are the first books that get burned or banned? It's the Bible, the religious books, the ones that would press gospel truth on people. We took the manhood track up to the Sheraton, whatever the hotel is over there in Wakefield. There's no more Bibles. They don't even let the Gideons put their Bibles in that room anymore. What's that about? We don't want the gospel word within 100 miles of us. Why do you think nobody goes to church anymore? You thought about it? So I've asked this question hundreds of times in being a church planner for 15 years. Here's the reasons that I get. Pedophile priests, that's why I don't go. Now I get that. If you knew there was a place where there was people charged with leadership who were doing harm to children, would you go within 100 miles of the place? I wouldn't. So I understand it. But is that the real reason or is that a convenient excuse? Christians are hypocrites. I get that one all the time. I get that. I go, yes, we are. But is that the real reason? I'm not religious. And then we have a long conversation about how everyone is religious and we all live from some worldview. And so, no, actually, you're super religious. It's just this gospel of grace that you want nothing to do with. I'm wicked busy. I don't know about that one because it is fascinating all the stuff that we have time for. I played ball with 12, 15 dudes in Melrose and somehow every Sunday morning, 7 a.m., they're down at the gym. Angle, ankle braces, knee braces, elbow braces. But they make it there. Why? What do they love? You are what you love. That's not the real reason. The real reason is that you love your sin more than you love God. Bottom line. And you know that if you bring yourself into contact with the gospel word, preached, spoke, read, sung, memorized, celebrated, your heart is going to be exposed and you don't want that. You don't want God messing around in there. This is not just true of unbelievers, it is true of me and you in this room right now, 100%. We've had some pastors fall into bad sin in our church planting network and a friend was asking like, you know, how does that thing happen? And one of the guys was like, here's how it happens, a thought goes rogue in the heart. A perverted affection lifts its head. A desire for something impure, unclean. And instead of allowing Christ by his word to come in and kill that thing and sweep it away and stir affections for holiness, we go, yeah, not that one. I'm going I'm to stop the gospel word from that place. I want to tend to this one a little bit over here. And as the sinful love grows, the rest of the heart gets hard and you lose your ability to be affected by God and the gospel. And 10 minutes later, you're committing adultery or you're berating your staff or you're sinning in unimaginable ways all because you said, I don't, I don't want the gospel word working in here. I want to love something and someone else. Here's my warning for you. It doesn't work. You cannot duck God the Holy Ghost. You can't do it. Here's our last verse. 
no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, what you love the most is going to be exposed. And if you have valued anything more, more than the person and the work and the character and the grace and the gospel of the living God, you will be judged for it and you will know. That's right. My loves were disordered. If this is true, then here's what I want you to do. Just come clean before the Lord and say, here is my heart. I am what I love. I am begging for you to set this heart on fire for you. I'm done messing around with lesser loves, perverted loves, self-centered loves. Will you come in here and do the work that only you can do? And the way that you say yes to that is by saying, I'm going to give myself to hearing and believing the word of God. Here's how we ask it. Last thing. Have you been allowing the Spirit through the word to convict and to change you? Have you been allowing the Spirit through the word to convict, to expose, and then to change and to move your affections? Do you love preaching? Do you love your Bible? Do you love gospel community where you get to hear the word from your friends? Do you love gospel-centered songs? Have you thrown your heart open to the sword of the Spirit that he might convict and discern and change what you love so that you might have joy? Let's go after this together. All right, let's pray. Father, help us get in line with reality. You are the most beautiful, most glorious, most holy, most valuable, most worthy person in the universe. Your first command, fundamental, is a good one, that we would love you with all that we've got because we are what we love. And if we could just get there, there would be so much joy. Would you forgive us from trying to duck and dodge you? Would you make this a place that says, We are exposing our hearts to the the work of the Spirit through the Word. Would you teach us to become fluent in and literate in and love our Bibles that you may do the work of keeping our hearts pure and clean so that we might have great joy. I pray that if there is anyone here who has not been born again, that in your grace right now you would change their hearts that they might say, I have no idea what happened on November 19th, 2017, but God, like a, like a sword, cut my heart, and suddenly it was beating for something different, that you would give that grace, and not just in this room, but in these cities, that you would just work on the consciences of men and women, that they might say, I'm done ducking and dodging. This is a joke, trying to hide who I am from God. I'm going to come clean and I want him to change me through his word. Would you let the next few years be an incredible season of that happening? Hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray. Amen.